Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Steve Harm, the creator, founder, and proprietor of The Warehouse in La Crosse, Wisconsin. How's it going, Steve? Uh, it's going okay. Busy day. I, I feel like that's most days for you. Uh, unfortunately, yes. I'm, I'm usually, I think I missed our last appointment because I wasn't sure what day it was because my days run into each other. I know exactly how that goes. Only because I work independently and I don't really, I never know what day it is. Um, but okay, so let's start out with what the warehouse is. Uh, for for me and many around me, it is an institution. Uh, but for the rest of the world, it may they may be wondering <laughs> if it's a liquor store. It's not. It's the opposite. Go ahead. You give give us your pitch for the warehouse. Well, let's see. I guess, you know, if I was talking to someone from far away or if I was talking to a parent who just came in here wondering what the hell this place is all about, um, we're an all-ages venue that, unlike a vast majority of all-ages venues, and by venue I mean concert venue, music performance space, um, unlike most quote-unquote all-ages venues, uh, we don't serve alcohol, uh, and we're not based around alcohol. In fact, we're the opposite. We're, uh, we're, we're in a town where there's a quite a an alcohol issue. Um, and uh, so we're a alcohol-free, drug-free performance space that probably our general crowd is about 15 to 22, although we have bands coming through from all around the country and, and in fact, all around the world. And we draw crowds that range anywhere from those 15-year-olds to 55-year-olds or even the 53-year-old old fart in the sound booth, which would be me. <laughs> I've even seen you on stage recently. Uh, that's only rumored. I have pictures. I even have video. Okay. Fake, fake news. <laughs> it was delightful. Um, so, yeah, like the warehouse has been around for 25 years almost now? Uh, we just crested 26 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, longer than even I've been going. And I went there. I used to go to the industrial dance nights when I was like 15, which would have been 20 years ago, 22 years ago. How old? Yeah. I don't do math well. Yep, but. They were quite, quite popular back then. Uh, we had a, we've always been sort of the secondary industrial market, which it, it sounds weird to even say there was an industrial market anymore because industrial is so low key these days. But uh, after Chicago, we were kind of the the prime industrial market, every band that started their tour off in Chicago, and there were a lot of international industrial bands, would always go next to lacrosse. So we got this great reputation where industrial bands that wouldn't go all the way up to Minneapolis, they would veer south after lacrosse, would play here, and Minneapolis people would come down, and lacrosse people would come out, and we'd, we'd get all kinds of great industrial shows here. All right. Well, we're, we're going to dig into that actually pretty heavily in a bit, but first I want to I want to know more about you. Where did you come from? What was uh, what was happening 26 years ago? 26 and earlier. Actually, I've got yeah, I've got to rewind a little bit before that just to to I guess lead into yes, why please I, do why I'm trapped here talking to you right now. Um, <laughs> when I was in, uh, I get, well as a young kid, I, I took piano lessons, drum lessons a little bit, um, played harmonica at age nine in church on a Christmas Eve one time. 
but he eventually found my way into a junior high cover band. And I was a terrible, terrible keyboardist, had a Sears chord organ um, that you, you basically pushed a, a note and it would play an entire chord. So you, you couldn't, there wasn't a whole lot of flexibility. But like made, a guitar made, tuned to D. Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> it just, you couldn't do, you know, you could only do one thing with it. And uh, so jammed with this this band of young junior high guys and got it going and kind of was doing the promo for it and everything. And this, uh, another kid in our class had a father who was an extremely rich doctor and the father bought him a bunch of keyboards and pretty soon Steve was not in the band anymore. Uh, but that, that fired me up and pissed me off. And uh, my brother was learning drums, so we started a, a, a band together as a two-piece band and played for uh, probably the first couple of years of high school and then added various guitarists um, that worked out for a short while and then didn't. We had a kind of a, we were really big fans of the new wave stuff. This was uh, probably 79, 78, 79, 80. So we were a huge fan of things like the cars here in the U.S. and stuff coming from overseas. Um, that there was there was a couple from town here that were these super punk rockers, Barry and Penny, and they they came to one of our shows because they heard that there were a couple kids doing something that wasn't like all the cover bands in town, and they kind of took us under their wing. And they had he had Rod Stewart type hair, and so did she. Um, they were total new wavers with spandex pants and uh, striped uh, tank tops all the time. And Barry would get beat up all the time because he wasn't like anybody else. And he was kind of a <laughs> meek little little guy. But they introduced us to so much music that we got really hooked on European new wave. And it became very hard for us to find a guitar player who wanted to play that kind of stuff. But eventually we did. Uh, great guy from Madison named Jim Gauss said, who was actually a huge Van Halen fan, believe it or not. And just put his own twist on what we were doing. And uh, we had four or five good years where, keeping in mind this was pre-internet, um, we, we booked national tours. Uh, we released records. We got a great review in Billboard magazine. And I was the evil mastermind, which was kind of our downfall. We got this great review in Billboard magazine that said um, this. we had put out an album and it it said the album was incredible and that uh, the packaging was incredible and that these guys from Wisconsin deserve a serious look from a major label. Now, that's a, a review in the industry publication. And instead of me trying to find a manager who could run that interview to everybody they could and um, you know make the most of it, I just sort of thought, okay, we've done all this work up till here. Now let's sit back and Watch that phone ring in West Salem, Wisconsin, where we were living, and uh, the it did, and it was Chrysalis Records, who was a big label at the time. They had Pat Benatar and a million other big acts, and they asked if we would sell one of our songs um, to one of their bands, Armored Saint, who wanted to cover it and put it on their record. A manager would have made us do that in a short second he would have said you've got tons of music left in you do it sell this song get your name out there me mr know-it-all thought well if the music is good enough 
for them to buy, then the band is good enough to sign. And they went away, and no big other labels came around, and we toiled for about another year and a half and then gave up on that. Okay, wait. So, yeah, I I think I would have had the same reaction at that point with the, you know, the level of success you'd had in Salem, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Armored Saint, the metal band? Yep. (laughs) Yep, I guess I would have to hear the music you were writing at the time to understand how that would have worked. Yeah, I wish I had a, you know, I'll, I'll try to dig out a cassette. And uh, we can <laughs> can amend this podcast at some point. I would love that. Um, like I said, it was it was sort of a mix of new wave and metal. That song was more straightforward rock, I guess, that probably had a little bit more of our guitar player's influence on it. Hmm. So, okay, yeah, was, so th- we are. This was the victims that we're talking about. This was a band called the Victims. Yes. And uh, and then what happened? When wh- what was your? When did you get signed and make it big? Wh- when did the victims get signed? <laughs> Uh, we did not. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we, that, like I said, that was a total follow up. I should have sold that song. Probably had a thousand more songs in me. Um, but you know, your pride gets you, and you're like, man, I've worked so hard to get me up there on that stage. Why do I want to give away one of the, you know, something that I, I pulled out of my heart and crafted, and uh, give it to somebody else to to show off? And uh, boy, that's just. Uh, that's why I advise young bands if they can when they're at that point to seek some outside counsel because uh, it's very easy to get wrapped up in yourself. Yeah. But then again, that furthered my path to where we are right now. Which, which so, I, I think is a, is a decent place. I mean, you're not touring the world snorting coke off of prostitutes' backs or anything, but... Hey, stop torturing me. <laughs> oh. But yeah. you're right. Um, but uh, shall I continue the story? On yes, how we please got- do. I, I apologize if I interrupted it. Oh, no, that's okay. It's Hell, it makes me want to stop and question things. Um, let's see. So, yeah, so we, we continued playing for another couple of years, and um, we had the weirdest breakup ever, I think. Uh, the, the other guys worked, but I, I worked. I got some kind of workaholic um, virus from my dad, I guess, and because there was no internet, it was it was twenty four seven of me going to the public library and looking up um, in in phone books because the public library used to have a massive collection of phone books from all around the country. I'd look up all the college radio stations I could find. We'd send out packages to them with a record, uh, including a postcard that we hoped they would return with maybe a, uh, something they thought about the record plus a list of maybe the best record stores and skateboard shops in town and maybe what venues they recommended in town. And we kind of, over the course of a couple of years, created our own database so we could do national touring on our own. Um, But that required so much uh, late night packaging and mailing. And my poor parents, living with my parents in West Salem, and no internet, so you're contacting people frequently via telephone whenever they answered their home phone they had to answer zero budget records which was our little record label and if someone asked any kind of question at all they had to claim that they were the cleaning crew and that uh, the staff was out to lunch or dinner or somewhere else in a meeting and would get back to them (laughs) 
And <laughs> my folks were good with that for several years, which was, you know, that's a lot to ask of your parents on your own, on your parents' own personal phone. <laughs> and we had, we had started out using that personal phone, so we didn't want to change the number because it was all over everything. Right. They were they were really good about that, but um, because I'd been working just nonstop, um, I I kind of got snowballed into it, just like I am now, where you don't know what day it is, and that the guys in the band wanted to take a month off, and that was unheard of for me, but I agreed, and we took that month off, and I actually stopped doing band stuff for about a, a week, and then realized I could go to a movie whenever I wanted to, or. I could just take a drive to think about things or I didn't have to race to get stuff to the post office. And then two weeks went by and then three weeks and then four weeks. And we literally broke up without ever breaking up. We just, everybody just kind of decided it was uh, way easier to move on to other things. Dissolves. Yep. So when the, when after that had uh, kind of became apparent that we weren't going to be playing anymore, uh, a friend of mine had a sound company that installed sound systems and rented sound systems at fairgrounds, uh, racetracks, um, cattle auctions, parades, just the weird stuff that, you know, not, not putting a sound system in a theater, putting a sound system on top of a 120-foot tower in the middle of a fairgrounds in Shawano, Wisconsin, up in the middle of nowhere during a thunderstorm kind of kind of. <laughs> company and and i did that for a couple of years and uh slept in cow barns and in tents and uh dealt with carnies dogs attacking me and uh uh dealt with pit pigeon shit that was four inches thick on rafters <laughs> of, of auction barns where you got to put speakers in and climbed up and down telephone poles with those giant world war ii round uh pa speakers that you always see <laughs> Whenever an announcement is happening, if you're looking at a rerun of MASH. Yeah, I was just going to say, first thing I think of is MASH. Just like those those old 70-volt systems, we did tractor pulls and demo derbies and everything <laughs> imaginable. But I had a couple buddies that had a tanning salon in the basement of a building in downtown La Crosse. There was nothing else in the building, just the tanning salon in the basement. But when I was back from doing those sound gigs, which was infrequently, but... Uh, you know, at least a few times a summer, I'd go and hang out with them and talk, and the place was always full of girls, so why wouldn't you? You know, it's a tanning salon. Um, so I would hang out with, with the buddies, and and I asked them if they had keys to the upper part of the building, because I loved old buildings, and uh, they did. They, they lent me the keys, and uh, they, they, had, they were renting the basement, um, but they had keys for the upstairs. Uh, mainly because they needed to get up there sometimes and put buckets out when the water was leaking from the roof all the way down to the basement. Um, but they, they gave me the keys and I came up the stairs and I saw all this amazing woodwork that had survived a hundred years. Um, this really uniquely shaped building because the, the streets don't come together at a 90 degree angle. So it means for a weird shaped staircase and a weird shaped room. And I looked around and I thought, you know, we we could probably do some kind of DJ band place up here. And that was because I had no idea what it probably took to do some kind of DJ band place. <laughs> but um, they agreed. We'd all been like, oh, and this is almost embarrassing to say, but we'd go to 
to Minneapolis once in a while on the weekends, me and the buddies downstairs and, and go to like dance places and dance. And uh, so we thought if we could bring some kind of house music and, and deep European mixes to lacrosse, it'd be really great. And we would do this place that could operate from 10 at night till four in the morning, be a real big city. And uh, we did. We just started doing it. And we had a great DJ from here in lacrosse who used to get white label uh, 12-inch vinyl from uh, Europe weekly, just tons of it. And uh, he would also mix in some of the American uh, house music at the time. And we, he'd also throw in a little bit of industrial. And uh, we were open from 10 o'clock at night till 4 in the morning. Now, for those that don't know, lacrosse, uh, this was on weekends, lacrosse bars close at 2.30 in the morning. So that seemed like a great idea because we'd get all those people after 2.30. They'd still want to dance, right? The kind of people that you get after 2.30 a.m. are the people who should have went home at 1.30 a.m. Yep. And they're all screwed up. And then to top it off, the interesting thing about this building is we're on, the, the venue is on the second and third floors. So to get to the main room where you would dance or uh, uh, watch bands, you've got to go 49 steps. So when you combine somebody who's been drinking all night with 49 steps, you get a lot of tumbling. That's why it's alcohol-free. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is it's just a safety hazard. I, I wouldn't say that's the prime reason, but uh, I would imagine that our insurance would be about 50 times more if you threw in alcohol. So at the point where you're, you're having these dance nights above a tanning salon, are you legally using the building? Are you renting that space? What is the statute of limitations? I think I think you're well past it. <laughs> we we, um, you know, the guys in the basement were renting the basement, and I think that they had some kind of agreement with the the landlords that they would uh, do some fix up upstairs because the the building was a wreck. The the guy, in fact, the guys in Minneapolis who owned it, um, basically had it as a, a write off to write off the value of all their other buildings, which were good buildings. They, they, I, I know for a fact that they were just hell bent on letting it fall down because the amount of leaks that were in here were astronomical. And I had a house like that once. Yeah. The landlord told me that as soon as we moved out or burned the place down, he was going to tear the whole thing down and build a new one. So you definitely knew that if something went wrong, calling him was going to achieve zero. Oh, absolutely. Nothing. Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess that means you don't have to be careful, but it's... Uh, you should have seen the party we had the last night before we all moved out. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was... I think that it could be fun on the final night, as long as he was okay with it. I want to back up for one second here. Um, I found zero budget records on the internet, and it turns out it still exists. Appears to be almost entirely metal bands. I'm, judging, I'm saying that based on the logos on their roster. They all look like metal logos. And that is entirely correct. There was um, part of the warehouse story um, is, is when, when the actual warehouse itself started going as it is now. Uh, we, we released local records upon occasion. Um, we, had, um, we released a lot of vinyl, some cassettes, and some CDs with local bands and one of those bands was failure 13 and uh, a guy named will maravellis was the guitar player songwriter for that band and um, 
after he was out of high school, moved on, moved to Minneapolis, started working at Guitar Center, uh, worked his way up to management in Guitar Center, and he, he contacted me and said, you know, would, would you have any problem if we started Zero Budget back up? Um, you know, you've got a good past roster, and, and it, it would just be, I'd like to do it. And uh, I, I gave him the chance to do that, and he kind of ran with it. He's got mostly metal bands, almost entirely Minneapolis area metal bands, but he's doing a good job with it. And uh, uh, he's been, you can now say that Zero Budgets run uh, probably, he likes to say 25 years because that's when the warehouse started, but Zero Budget technically started in 1980 with the first victim single. Nice. That's a that's a long history. Uh, it is, yeah. All right, so we're throwing uh, basically raves in um, an unattended building at this point. How did you that, that? How did that progress? <laughs> you make that sound so uh, like it was sexy. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> and it, it it was crazy because, like I said, we got the people that, that at two thirty we're getting the people that shouldn't um, shouldn't be out drinking. Uh, and it was two, two floors and it was very hard for us to watch the entire building cause it's a pretty big building. And, uh, you know, we were a staff of young guys who was probably more interested in meeting girls than running a business. So you'd get people drinking off in side rooms. Uh, we found people, uh, having sex in side rooms and, um, it was just, it was not a good thing. Uh, it, it was. I should state that it was uh, 18 up at that point. But I mean, at 2:30 in the morning, you're not getting 18 year olds. You're getting 25 year olds, <laughs> just loaded. But what finally, uh, finally was the last draw was that uh, our door guy had a gun pulled on him um, by a, a, a Puerto Rican gentleman who thought that we were, because we were charging, we were discriminating against him. Uh, and we weren't because there was a cover charge for everyone, but he couldn't speak English very well. And he was quite convinced that we were discriminating specifically against him. And uh, that was about enough for us to just call it quits on that. Sure. I feel so like we, one should it, should surmount a language barrier before resorting to uh, pulling out weapons. Uh, that was our thought. But <laughs> again, with the kind of... Um, uh, substance. I mean, with the, with the kind of amount of alcohol that people had in at that time of the night, they didn't make very good choices. Yeah, I get and it. One of the whole cool things was at 10 o'clock at night, when you'd get 18-year-olds from 10 till midnight or 10 till 1, they weren't drunk. They were just people out to dance, which was awesome. But when you went past that time frame, you know, we, we probably should have just switched the time frame. But what ended up happening was we just stopped doing it. And there, was, there were other reasons, too. Um, we didn't really have a uh, heating system in here. Uh, the building had been radiator heat up until about the mid sixties. La Crosse used to have a steam plant down by the river and it would, the steam would go th- through pipes in the, in tunnels that ran through uh, underneath all the sidewalks and provide heat to the, the radiators and buildings. And when in the sixties, when they closed that down, a lot of people put in their own boilers. Um, and whoever put in the the boiler here, put it in for the first floor and just gave up on boi- running a boiler for the second and third floors. 
and put in these giant electric uh, 30 amp wall heaters in every room on the second floor, which the second floor is like office size rooms. So there were about 10 of those down there. And uh, there was just radiator heat upstairs, which wasn't hooked up. So there was really no heat. And man, we were <laughs> DIY in the heat, pretty hardcore. There's a fireplace in one room. We used to burn cardboard and everything we could and then set up fans and try to blow the heat through the building. <laughs> we, we, oh my God, when the fire department here's this good thing they can't go back in time <laughs> keeping in mind like i said this was 25 years ago we, we would bring a hundred pound um uh, is it a hundred pound or a hundred gallon i don't know how you measure it one of the big propane cylinders up the back fire escape because you don't want them seeing you going in the front door with that and then we'd hook up one of those construction blowers that are just <laughs> a jet engine right at the on the second floor and just wide open that thing for you know until you ran out of the propane heater and, and try to heat the building that way keeping in mind it's a building built in 1888 with windows that are with 42 windows that are single pane um and uh you know you can kind of blow right through them if you choose to so it was it was a challenge so when we when we um closed the first time it was it was kind of okay because it was a lot less um a lot less work for any of us to do i would uh interject at this point that this whole story is bringing back memories for me. Uh, when I lived in Minneapolis in the early 2000s, um, me and some bandmates, we, we rented a, a second story. It had originally been a dentist's office, uh, was across the street from what was now being used as a quote unquote spa. If you're familiar with the term, um, and uh, and we started having shows there. It became known as the Inferno, and we tore down all non-weight-bearing walls and built a stage and had a little green room. And wow, uh, yeah, and it was just the four of us, and we took turns bouncing and working door and booking bands and got to be the house house band for a lot of touring acts that were really. I mean, it it. There were not at that point. There were like three good punk rock places in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. um, and if you weren't at the Bomb Shelter, uh, the Inferno would come up next, and it was oh, it was fun. I mean, it was a lot of work because it was all DIY stuff like that. Was it legit? A legit? No, not in any no, way. No permits? No nothing? No nothing. Well, it was super punk rock. You go up two flights of stairs to a door that says "Abandon All Hope." <laughs> spray painted on it and then enter and yeah wow <laughs> so anyway all right you know, it kind of makes you wonder how many of those places have existed throughout time i'm sure every decent sized town and city has had one at some point yeah i think you don't really hear about them unless you're in the band community or unless there's some kind of fire tragedy there <laughs> right that's why it's called the underground right <laughs> Two stories up, but the underground. <laughs> uh, hey, we're not a warehouse, but we're called the warehouse. So Exactly. So the warehouse at this point, what will be the warehouse, has closed. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I was still doing this sound touring thing, um, doing Garth Brooks on a hay wagon at the Manitowoc Fair, or whatever we were doing at the time. But uh, one of the guys, it, it was the guys from the basement, another buddy and me, or another buddy and myself who had, who had done this stuff upstairs with the warehouse 
and um, the other buddy who had been a lifelong friend of mine and had been a crew guy on the for the victims um, called me up and said, you know, I, th- I think we could probably do that ourselves um, and do it a little more legit. Um, his dad was an architect. His mom was an accountant. It was kind of perfect. Um, and he was thinking of doing something that, that still played dance music, but uh, was more um, uh, earlier in the evening and more centered on younger people. So we ended up uh, doing that. We contacted the, the owners in Minneapolis and we said, hey, we'd like to rent the upstairs. And they were, we got a really cheap deal. And I think we rented the upstairs for $200 a month with the, the caveat that all we had to do I am using quotation marks on the end of that that are so huge, I can barely hold them. <laughs> All we have to do is bring the building up to code. <laughs> um, which, so we started at it and, uh, you know, sanding the floors and painting and doing all the stuff that had needed to be done on the, the DIY space before that. We're working on the bathrooms and uh, um, starting to replace electric, but obviously with electricians and plumbing with, with plumbers and, uh, getting city inspectors coming in and there'd been a, a venue down the street, a very big room um, called the Mississippi queen it had later been called I'm trying to remember what it was in its final incarnation might've been scruples or Oh, silver bullet. Uh, it was, it was a big room. It was yeah. one, one of the big rock rooms from the seventies that used to be frequent um, or, or, you, or you'd find in, in cities this size where bands would come through and play, cover songs three sets five nights the same band you know there was a, there was a great circuit for bands we'll be like here that. all week yep and then every once in a while a, a national touring act would come through um in fact we i used to go to that as a as a young kid um we used to contact all the the big touring bands that were coming through just with letters and trying to track down their managers and things and we'd get put on the guest list even though it wasn't an all ages venue at the time and the bouncer began to know us as cousins of the band, regardless of who was playing there. <laughs> so we get to get in to see a lot of national bands. But um, anyway, they, they had started doing uh, teen nights. And in fact, we had helped them start doing that with the victims. Um, uh, doing some, some We got the first all-ages shows passed through the city council that we could do an all-ages show in a bar there. And we had the first night that we did it uh, was a... a record release show for us. We had 1500 people in there and it was, uh, you know, so it was a big moneymaker for the bar guy. And so he started doing that every weekend. And when he found out that we were going to be open in this place, um, uh, the, the second time, uh, he, he put a lot of pressure on the inspectors. Uh, and, uh, in fact, at one point we, we, we had, had inspectors come in and tell us that we needed to do the bathroom one way. So we had a plumber come in, did it all up. Inspector come back in two weeks after that, say, nope, this is all wrong. Here's what I said. And then the plumber come back in, redo it. And then inspector come back in a third time and say, no, that's not what I said. Here's what I said. At which point we were videotaping him because it was just complete bullshit. Right. And, uh, I, I, I wasn't the guy I am now. I was just a young guy learning all this stuff. And I, I finally asked the inspectors when they were leaving one time, you know, why are you guys coming down on us so hard? And I was told, and I wish I had the video camera then, and this was an inspection department that's not there now. This is a long time ago. Someone down the street has more money than you as they walked out the door. And that was it. So when you go legit, sometimes you're, you're fighting some pretty big powers. 
Yeah. But anyway, we did through. Oh, and they they tried to uh, they they tried to pull a lot of stuff on us right up until the day that we were scheduled to open, and we had to go to the state department of inspections through uh, my my business partners, um, my buddy's dad who was the architect. He went to the state, and the state went around the city guys, and the state called up the city and said, lay off these guys. Everything is okay. So then we were finally able to open. So it was it was a process, but it was a much different place when we opened it the second time because it was, well, clean. <laughs> uh, we, were, we were watching all the floors. We were using a lot of the rooms. Uh, the floors were sanded. Uh, it was beautiful. And um, we had – we opened um, – just on Fridays and Saturdays, and we were packed every weekend for, I don't know, probably two years of just doing everything top, straight top 40. It was Color Me Bad, um, Boys to Men, CNC Music Factory. But but even then, you're not serving alcohol. Even then, yeah, well, yeah, I was completely alcohol-free because it was, it, at that point, it was really targeted at, at high schoolers. Um, although, because of the we had a very loud sound system, and because of the unique environment, um, we did get people that were older than high schoolers here up quite a bit. But it was a it was a good mix, and uh, according to that rental agreement with our our uh, landlords, we we did we took all the money we made every weekend and uh, put it into fixing up the place, um, putting in additional electric, uh, you know, making sure there were smoke alarms and. Uh, a security system and a, and a monitoring system for the smoke alarms and the radar rise detectors and uh, um, you know upgrading sinks and toilets and whatever we needed to do to make the place totally up to code. So and what, what the what year are we at now? Um, so at that point we are at ninety three. Okay. Yep. I and, think I think that was the first year I ever went to the warehouse. Was it? Yeah, it seems like maybe that was the first year I could have. And that's, uh, and you said you went to industrial night, so that could be because what what we had was um, some kids started coming that were they they were not the color me bad <laughs> crowd, but they were. You could see there was a click of them, and they were really cool. And me, as someone who had been going to First Avenue when I was in a band a lot and driving down to the Metro in Chicago to see all the Wax Tracks bands yeah. and to see all the touring industrial bands and the European bands, um, I, these kids were – I was so happy to see them. And it, it was it was people that were – you know, I could see they had leather jackets with ministry painted on them, <laughs> leather jackets with Fields of the Nephilim painted on it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me in lacrosse. And um, – here they were coming in, so uh, we talked to them and, and decided that one of those weekend nights we would make into an alternative night uh, doing alternative music. And it wouldn't necessarily be straight up industrial. And we, it, instead of giving up a Friday or Saturday, we first started it on a Thursday. And we did everything from ministry to Nirvana to... Um, yeah, Thursday nights. Uh, yep. And... Uh, and it was everything in between. It was just everything that fit into alternative. And by and God's twenty, by God twenty's cover of like a ver, not like a virgin, like was a it? prayer, like a prayer. Yeah, yeah. That was I think the first night I ever went to an industrial dance was uh, I heard that was the first time I heard that track, 
And then I was not a social kid, but I did love Billy Idol. And when they played Dancing With Myself, I ended up on the top riser <laughs> uh, doing like a solo lip sync. Totally sober, of course. <laughs> I recall very well. And I'm, I met a new girl that night. It was, yeah, fun night. A girl as well. Wow. Right. Uh, well, you know, the guy who does the Billy Idol thing on top riser is going to get going to meet somebody. <laughs> That's true. Either either a fist in the face or a girl. So, yep. it was a it was a, a really weird time where those kids that like grunge could hang out with those kids that like hardcore rap that could hang out with those kids that liked uh, uh, industrial music that could hang out with those goth kids. Um, Wait, has that changed? Are things uh, so divided now that you're not allowed to associate? It it has splintered a lot. It's just it's not. It doesn't seem to be cool anymore. And it even what, what happened here, um, a place across the street opened up uh, a coffee shop on the second floor of a a business called Painted Alley. Yeah, and that's that siphoned off some of the kids, and then. Duffy Records opened a place above their store, above uh, which is very. Both these places are within a hundred feet of us. Um, that was when their store was on the corner of Fourth and J. They opened right. a space above Pickerman's, and that siphoned off some of the kids. And before, when we were the only place, it kind of forced all those kids to be together, and they were all, you know, they all got along great. But when they had different places to go, they kind of found those, and it separated it all, and uh, it. it it was that was kind of the slow downfall of it, and then we we switched to just doing industrial, and it, we did have people that would come down from Minneapolis regularly, and boy, a lot of Winona kids that would come down, and then the lacrosse kids, the, the industrial and goth stuff did did well for quite a while, and well enough where we moved it to a Friday, so that we could do the old, the other stuff on Saturdays, the top forty stuff, and that that became a pretty big staple actually was that Friday night industrial night, but we didn't have a whole lot of the grunge kids anymore. The, the, the metal kids. Yeah. But we did have a awesome group for a decade of industrial kids. And the cool thing was if we could get those Chicago agents who booked the industrial vans to realize that Saturday night, um, would be a great night to have a show. Uh, a lot of those Minneapolis people that came down for dance nights, would make enough friends here that they could stay with them and they'd stay the next night for the industrial show, whatever it was, um, you know, whoever was coming through and, uh, it, it worked out great. We were very much the industrial hub for both dancing and bands for quite a while. Uh, where, where does zero dark 30 fit into this? Uh, zero dark 30 was, um, let's see, Brent, who was one of the, who's the singer for zero dark 30, which, which was the local industrial band. Uh, was one of our DJs, uh, Nick, who's the the big songwriter for that band, also DJed a bit here, and Luke, who's a musician as part of that band, and I guess you could consider him a songwriter too, was also one of the DJs here. They had a rehearsal space in the building. We started doing that when we realized uh, we had all these extra rooms, and at one point we had nine bands rehearsing in the building, sometimes simultaneously, and this is not a a warehouse building with concrete walls. Right. It was designed for that. This is a 1800s building with plaster and lath walls. And, uh, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> there was, 
there was some serious cacophony going on. And uh, uh, at some point, there was a recording studio added. Uh, yes, that was. Um, uh, we had a doing. What happened with when we started doing those industrial bands? We also started doing the occasional grunge band um, because uh, uh, bands like uh, Pearl Jam were getting signed and were doing really well, and and record companies were fishing for bands from the Northwest because that's where all the money was. A lot of those bands had to go to New York to showcase, and if you take I ninety out of out of the Pacific Northwest, you're going through lacrosse. And um, so, and we're about halfway to New York without the hassles of Chicago. So we're a great place for that band to stop, get their chops back to where they should be after a day and a half of driving. Um, so they're so they're better when they get to New York. And uh, we had bands start stopping and uh, reporting back to their agents that not only did they have a good show, but that the kids were really enthusiastic. The venue was really cool. Everybody was really nice to them. And when could they go back? And so that kind of word of mouth to agents who previously didn't know where La Crosse, Wisconsin was, um, started making a pretty big, big change in things. And we started getting bands, um, you know, once a week or twice a week coming from the West coast. And then that spread to the East coast. And, um, we, we got, Lots of bands that, uh, at the time, we probably shouldn't have got because they were they were too big. But uh, lacrosse just became a really handy stopover. The Descendants, uh, such as the Descendants, yeah, that was one where, you know, we worked with the agent a lot on a lot of his smaller bands. He knew we put on great shows. He knew we were uh, very professional about how we treated bands, um, and and how we ran a show. And that that was from my years of being in a band, you just kind of go, I mean, you spend nine or 10 years going, geez, I wish this guy was running this different. You, you start memorizing all that stuff. <laughs> so with the descendants agent, he'd been putting a bunch of small bands in here. The small bands uh, were reporting back great things. And he got, um, he got, he, he got word from the descendants that they wanted to get back together. Uh, this was after 10 years. And, um, he booked them at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for a big outdoor festival, and they didn't want to play their first show in 10 years at a big outdoor festival. They wanted to just get a little warm-up, and they couldn't do it anywhere near Madison, and they didn't want to do it near Minneapolis because that's just that's too big of a deal. They wanted to kind of keep it low-key. It was not low-key. <laughs> um, when you say that the sentence are getting back together after 10 years, people are buying plane tickets, uh, Rolling Stone <laughs> magazine. We had a photographer from Rolling Stone show up and take pictures. Um, you know, we, that's what you're dealing with on the phone is, hey, this is so-and-so from Rolling Stone. We need to get passes for our photographer. That was, it kind of freaked us out. Yeah. I was, was there for that show. It was amazing. And it cemented my love of, of lacrosse, Wisconsin. Hmm. The fact that something had become so established that the descendants would kick off a tour in little lacrosse, Wisconsin. Yeah, I think it had the the Rolling Stone people kind of confused. <laughs> it, it 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 is a phenomenon. But they 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 wrote a great little review of it. Um, I guess it was a pretty big review of it uh, in their their next issue, which was the one with uh, Tupac on the front because he'd been shot uh, and killed. And um, the the live section of that issue had Pearl Jam at the Key Arena. David Bowie at the Limelight in New York, 
and the descendants at the warehouse in La Crosse, Wisconsin, <laughs> nice. which just made no sense when you look at it. And he, he wrote a, the, the, the writer wrote a great review of, um, you know, said in a, he called it a completely punk rock DIY space. And uh, he, I know he would have written a longer story because he had, he talked to everybody that worked here. Um, and they all came back to me and said, he asked me all kinds of questions about why I would volunteer here and, and what this place means to me. And, and then, you know, of course, it's just a live review, so he didn't get to write any of that. But right. everybody was really surprised at how inquisitive he was. I, the biggest thing I remember with him was our stage was about six inches shorter, maybe a little shorter than that. And uh, here's a, a guy who shoots for Rolling Stone. He's used to being behind a barricade with <laughs> muscle-bound security guys all around him. Uh, after the show, he was just limping around because his shins were just beat to hell. <laughs> you could imagine because that crowd was going nuts and you were there so you know yeah i was also there for a lot of shows that people who are my age will remember a band called everclear uh who had a radio hit that honestly kind of sucked uh but prior to that they played the warehouse i swear it was weekly for a long time uh it would have seemed like that with um, no cover sometimes um, I think the first couple times it was probably a $3 show. Yeah. The first couple times were, uh, I think twice in one week they played on a, on a Monday night they were coming through. So we put reptile love machine and some other local bands with them. Um, nobody knew who they were. They were on Tim Kerr records out of Portland, but they had called and needed a gig. So we're like, Sure. And they, oh, no, I, and they had sent their CD, which we the the Tim Kerr CD, which was an EP, was just full of life. It was, it would, we knew it would sound great live. And um, three piece band that sounds solid live is just awesome. So they played on a Monday, and they were they were really full of fire, and they were going to um, Minneapolis on the Tuesday, St. Louis on the Wednesday. And then somewhere, they had to go out west after that. But we said, hey, you know, we've got a local show Thursday if, you know, you guys want to. And they drove back from St. Louis uh, to play that second show that week. And that kind of cemented a really good friendship with, with all of them. Um, although that was their first drummer at the time, Scott, who was, in fact, that might have been why he came back. He used to drum for the Blue Stars. Uh, I don't know that band. Uh, that, that is the drum and bugle corps from based out of lacrosse here. Oh, okay. He used to he used to drum for them, and so he he knew some people here. So, so they came back twice in one week, and then uh, every time they they left uh, Portland, and went towards the east, they would stop here. And they at one point they said that that they had played in lacrosse second only to Portland as far as the number of times, but we brought them up from you know 30 person shows to sold out to then doing the hollywood theater which at the time i was doing some shows there they used to do concerts there before that place fell into a horrible state of disrepair and it, um in fact i've got a article i don't know where it is it used to be framed on my desk uh we to sell tickets for that show at the hollywood we used the lacrosse center and uh it was just walk up and phone call and we sold 1,100 tickets in just under an hour, and that was because they only had two 
uh, two ticket sellers there because they didn't think that it was going to sell that well. <laughs> and as far as hits, uh, I think that you think they only had one song because a lot of them sounded exactly alike. <laughs> they did have Father of Mine, uh, I Will Buy You a New Life. Um, I think, yeah, I Will Buy You a New Life Santa, was the Santa one Mar- that it didn't sound like. I had really enjoyed their performances at the warehouse. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like I had no idea they would ever make it big. And then what I heard on the radio did not sound like the band that I had enjoyed previously. There, there was a, a early rawness to them that was uh, all energy and yeah. fire. And uh, some of that did, did go away with production and did go away with, with lyrics as well. Yeah. Uh, they, Oh, we had them on the weirdest show ever at the warehouse. <laughs> we uh, they were they were recording. Um, I don't remember which album they recorded, but they recorded it at uh, Smart Studios down in Madison uh, with Butch Vig. Yeah, and um, they were in the middle of that recording, and they they were going to take a day off from recording, and they wanted to play somewhere so that they could um, kind of get some of the fire back for the recording. And they didn't want to do it in Madison because they didn't want people to know they were in Madison recording. So they drove up to lacrosse and and well, they they called me and said, "Hey, can we get on this show?" And I had to explain to them that the show that night was a ten-person uh, industrial bile bile. Yes, oh, I was at that one. <laughs> yep. And they're like, "We don't care." I'm like, "No, you, you don't understand. These, these guys are like wearing." hoods and uh screaming industrial music and they're like we don't care like, that was okay, the first so- show i ever peed my pants at when he <laughs> when when they flooded the floor with uh with fog and then the guy pulls out like a 45 i have no idea if it was real but he just starts walking through the crowd i was <laughs> it was scary i bought wow. the t-shirt anyway but <laughs> yeah i don't think you could do that these days i don't think so uh, but yeah, that that and that was definitely the weirdest combination. I think we called it Mosh Mosh Fest or Mosh Night or something. But to have those two bands play together was <laughs> I'm sure it was probably the weirdest combination that Everclear has ever done too, barring any you know festivals or something. I don't think it's anything their manager would ever ever from that point on ever have suggested. Probably not. I still know Art. And I still know Art, Art's the singer from Everclear, and I still know Kristoff, the the singer from Bile, um, who I will occasionally mention just to taunt him. Hey, I booked you guys with Everclear. <laughs> I think that knocks him for a loop because it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, so over the years you had you had a bunch of well-known bands: Dead Milkmen, Suicide Machines, Baruch Assault, Fallout, Fallout Boy. Uh, but for me, like the beauty of the warehouse and and the fact that it it had that draw that would bring in bands and like recently kite um, that they would the bands would come back, but it also sprouted all of these local bands and it gave a place for both Minnesotans and Wisconsins. It was a place that you could book and play and be part of an actual concert, not, you know, not an open mic night. You could actually play to kids who would appreciate your music. Yeah. It, it became obvious very shortly after we started doing bands that although it was, 
important to to uh, bring bands in to you know expose lacrosse to some bands that they wouldn't normally see. That what might be more important is giving local bands a chance to play with those bands, so they would befriend them, um, you know, be able to talk to them, pick their brains about the music industry, and and learn from watching them, and then also be able to get in front of uh, a crowd of people that had possibly come to see that headlining band and get their music out there as well as their friends who were interspersed throughout the crowd, um, you know, to play for them. And even for mom and dad who probably ordinarily, you know, wouldn't get to see them uh, play anywhere. And that, that that was one of the big things too, for me um, as a starting out as a young musician, um, when I was in a band in high school, when we started the victims, there was nowhere to play. The reason that we finally got, scruples or silver bullet or whatever it was called able to do an all ages show once in a while was that there was just no way for our friends to even see us play unless we played it somewhere that really wasn't set up for bands to play right and that is um that's the greatest thing is to 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 see those young bands get up on stage and have somebody who cares about how they sound who cares about how they're lit um and, and, you know, who cares about the production and everything else. And we've got enough guys working here that are musicians that if some kid has something wrong with his amp or has a setting, you know, the tone's wrong on his guitar, Brian that works here will jump up there and fix it for him. Or I can attest to that. If it weren't for the warehouse, uh, my high school band would not have, if we wanted to do something other than a basement show, basically the Playmore in Rochester was our option. And yep. the warehouse was 10 times better. A, it wasn't uh, uh, a waxed floor square dance hall, oh. which I can tell you a waxed floor makes a mosh pit really dangerous. Um, it, it had a better better room, better crowd. And yeah, the audio techs and the whole setup, the speaker setup, everything about it was way more than a high school band could ever ask for in a venue. Yeah, you know, we basically put the victim system in here, and uh, <laughs> being a band that was uh, based a lot around synthesizers and uh, um, electronic drums, we had a pretty kicking sound system for the day. Yeah. And so when we opened up as a live music venue, it wasn't going to be two speakers on a stick. <laughs> um, you know, it was. I, I wanted, always wanted people who came in to feel like they were seeing a real show, and uh, I think. Most bands are really surprised when they get up here, you know, touring bands. I think most patrons that walk in off the street, you can tell there's some music up on that third floor room, but you don't really know what's going on until you get up in there. And it's a 120 decibels and it's, it's, a, it's a rock concert when you walk in. So before we talk about where the warehouse is right now, I want to, uh, I told Ben I was going to. I was going to talk about him on this podcast. It wasn't a promise. It was a threat. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, you know, Ben Cook from the Sweat Boys. Uh, Benny Sweat, I think the kids call him. Maybe. <laughs> um, when did you meet Ben? <laughs> did he tell you to ask that? Uh, he did not. Oh, boy. Is this a dangerous question? Uh, I hope his parents aren't listening. <laughs> his, his parents were not happy when he first came here. And I think he had to misrepresent the fact that he was coming here. Um, unfortunately, like a lot of kids have to, which is just dumb. 
So I guarantee you more kids get in trouble at the Central Aquinas basketball game <laughs> than they ever get into here. Um, but, uh, yeah, his, his, his parents were not very pleased that he came here. And uh, when he really came to my attention uh, was when we had this sticky band from uh, down by Milwaukee called the Electric Hellfire Club. They were, oh God, they were I remember just them. all about the shtick. I mean, <laughs> you know, like big pentagram banners yeah, and yeah. stuff that electro industrial anyone would think was goofy if you <laughs> just took one step back and looked at it. You know, it, it it was by no means trying to recruit people to Satan or anything like that. <laughs> but they were called the Electric Hellfire Club and some of their lyrics were probably about that and um that show was was going on, and Ben was here, and uh, oh, I hope he doesn't kill me for telling you this. His uh, <laughs> one of his parents came up, and uh, uh, had I think either asked someone at the door if Ben was here, or asked someone that that the parent knew if Ben was here. And uh, they said yes. So the parent gave Ben, or gave Rich, our door guy, $10, which it was to get in. Uh, Rich handed it back and said, if you're just going to get somebody, that's okay. And the parent ripped it up into little pieces and threw it in Rich's face. (laughs) And then went upstairs and within 30 seconds was dragging Ben by his ear uh, out the door. Yeah. And uh, just for context, um, Ben is now on our board of directors. Um, ben has performed here in many different bands. Uh, and I mean, that, that was probably 15, 20 years ago at least. And uh, Ben has become a very crucial part in uh, a lot of things around here, I, I run bands past him once in a while when they contact me to say, you know, do you think this is going to work? Um, I try to help him with uh, his band, Sweat Boys, as much as I can, especially getting him hooked up with uh, touring bands or international bands. Those guys have played with Kite, who's from Sweden. Um, uh, I can't remember the Japanese punk rock band. I can't remember their name. I missed uh, that one. Destat from uh, the Netherlands, who are getting really big in Europe. They toured with Muse at arenas all last summer. Um, every, every time an international band comes through, I kind of put the, the Sweat Boys with them. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a little bit of selfishness to that because I love seeing international bands come out of the dressing room when the Sweat Boys start playing with their their mouths hanging open just trying to figure out what in the world is going on for context though kite yes. which is an amazing oh. uh I, I wouldn't classify them as industrial electronic band with no anyway like they came once you and ben i think probably talked them into playing with the sweat boys once and then they asked to come back and the lead singer got on stage with ben and did a Sweat Boys song with the band. That's crazy cool. There was and there was something at the end of that show too. Um, um, when I was talking to let's see, 
The one guy's name is Christian. I can't remember the other guy's name. God, I'm so bad with names because I meet so many people. Um, just chatting about how things are kind of going financially now. And, and he said, if you need us to come back for a fundraiser of any type, we will come back. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any time that you're planning on coming back? He said, that does not matter. And that's that's a big commitment from somebody coming from um, Sweden to yeah. to say that we will bring all of our gear and uh, you know take the time off of, of work and whatever else we do and come over to do that. Nicholas, Nick, yeah, yeah, but yeah. well, and it's amazing because they're a really great band. Like it's not a it's not a joke. <laughs> they could be amazing for the Sweat Boys. Yep, and yeah. for the Warehouse. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so, and you're I, right. They're not I wouldn't call them industrial. I would. They're they're kind of um, a combination of sad yet extraordinarily uplifting melancholy synth, synth pop. Synth pop. Yeah. Yeah. It's like his voice just soars, but there's a sadness to the whole it thing. It sounds just, like tears laughing. I'll I'll buy that. <laughs> I'll buy That's that. my review. That's, that's safe to say, and, and everyone who hasn't checked them out should. They're called Kite, and if you're if you're looking for their music and you're getting frustrated because all you can find is EPs, that's their brilliance. They only release EPs, and almost all of it is on iTunes and Spotify. And I would just look it up. It's awesome. And also, Ben is one of my favorite people in the world, and I'm so glad that the warehouse was there for him. Like he's on the board of directors because that became his, his like second family. The warehouse meant a lot to all of us, but especially to Ben. That's good to hear. And I mean, that's, you know, when you're trying to sell the idea of the warehouse to people, um, a, a lot of parents are like, well, you know, if they, if they threw a stage up at the boys and girls club, it's the same thing. No, it's not. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, this 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 building has a history and a heart, and the people that work here, um, aside from me, are are all so dedicated to to what they do. And when I say work, they're everybody's been volunteers. We've had twenty six years of volunteers, from the bottom up to me, and it's because we all realize how important it is for for not only those young musicians, but what what hovers around those young musicians and what frequently is those that group are, are people that are have severe social anxieties they're you know they're they're artistic they're, they're introverts and uh many of them you can see them when they come in it's that that's the, the the beauty of this is i'm up in the sound booth so i can always look over the room so i see new kids when they come in and i see them a couple months later and i see them a couple months later and that kid from sparta that just came in that doesn't have any friends, but really took the chance to come to a show. Two months from now, we'll have a little core of friends, and they're not from Sparta. One's from Viroqua, one's from Caledonia, but they're all friends because they all love that same kind of music. And then four months from now, there's six of them. And then a year from now, everybody is friends with everybody. And there's been just generation, and with high schoolers, you're talking about like a four-year generation. There, there, there's been 
or four-year regeneration in the generations. There's just generation after generation of kids making lifelong friends How? because there's a place to go where they're not being told what to do by adults. Um, they're not having religion forced down their throats, which is, you know, some of the teen centers. Um, and and they're, they're, they're seeing and hearing and being who they who they want to be and what they what they want to hear and they don't feel like they have to conform to be here they feel like it will conform to them yeah and that's so critical on a you know a a kid at a young age because teen suicide happens and um you know there's a lot of kids that are depressed i people don't understand some of the like people know I stay up until five in the morning and go home and then I get back up at eight and come back here. But I talk to so many kids who get a hold of me online because their parents hate them, they say, or their mom's not getting along with their stepdad, or their their sister's mad at them, or their 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 English teacher is really really giving them a hard time. Talked to a kid last night for about three hours whose mom had found the boyfriend uh, in the bathtub with slashed wrists. Uh, wasn't dead, but was on his way. And all these kids feel like they can come. And I know that other people who work here have the same thing, where kids come and talk to them. And we, it's weird. We opened a venue and we're de facto um, psychologists or psychiatrists for so many <laughs> young kids who just don't have anybody else to talk to or they're here so much and they're so comfortable with everyone here that they feel they can bring their their problems to us and although that just destroys my time and my, my ability to get anything done it still feels awesome to be able to tell that kid that yes she broke up with you yes she was your world but you know there's going to be a world tomorrow and wasn't that other girl that was at that other show, wasn't she interested in you? <laughs> I hate to tell you this if you don't already know, but you are basically a uh, father figure or maybe uncle to 25 years worth of kids. <laughs> well, you know, people have, uh, that when I just meet, they ask me if I have kids and I always tell them, well, I've usually got about 100 kids uh, a couple times a week and that's, that's enough. About 175,000 over the last few years, yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> well, and that doesn't include the bands who, right. even the touring bands, are are just big kids. Sure. Uh, and they are always <laughs> call for advice on record deals. They call for advice on gigs. Um, they call for advice on the bass player just doesn't seem to be giving it his all. You know, <laughs> That is a lot of work. I'm sorry. Yeah, Steve. I just, uh, I wish there was some way to get $175 an hour like psychiatrists do for it, but I, I'm just going to have to settle for the satisfaction of, uh, I guess, resolving their issues for them. Your, your eulogy will be amazing. Don't worry. And swift, I hope. <laughs> okay, so as a last point, we're going to skip the top three picks because... This this was a conversation worth not interrupting. Um, uh, the the warehouse is now officially a nonprofit, and there is a warehouse alliance 
uh, I, or has it been rebranded? The website is All Ages Alliance. Um, what's going on with that? Uh, boy, part of my uh, part of my mantra on, on, on the warehouse was that um, we would never charge bands to play. Now that sounds weird because why would you charge bands to play? But from the the beginning of the record industry, very small bands have been buying their way onto big tours with big bands. And uh, you know that was happening way back in the 50s and 60s to get to get exposure. And that started slowly working its way down to the point where local promoters, say in Minneapolis or Madison or any city, basically, if they've got a show where there's a, a what they would call a big band coming in that's playing any size room from 100 on up, they will charge the local bands or make the local bands buy tickets to the show and then let those the local bands try to sell the tickets to make their money back. Right. Um, I've always been against that because I think those young local bands, A, should be able to... I, I can tell if they've drawn people when I look at the room because I can tell how the crowd is reacting. Um, I can also tell who's there that's not there for them that is reacting well to them. So I know that if a band performs well and can bring in some people, I, I know what show I can add them to next. If they perform really well and they don't bring in any people, I also know what kind of show to get them on that will get them in front of some people. But I've never thought that they should have to sell tickets. And the, there's a, it's happening right now that... Um, Promoters are making bands do that. In fact, there was a, a band from the Whitehall area that had to sell like $40, $50 tickets to be on a big show in Minneapolis. And uh, that means they got to outlay $2,000 and then try to earn that back. Bands have to pay for equipment, lessons, their van, their trailer, maintenance on that equipment, maintenance on that van and trailer, their rehearsal space, the time off of work to play. They should not have to pay for tickets and then spend the time trying to do the job that the promoter is doing, which is promoting and selling the tickets. And, I would agree. Uh, but but what, what changes the whole economy of the business is that when you've got a city like Minneapolis and they're fighting with me for a show and the promoter there can offer three times more money up front as an upfront guarantee because he knows he's got four sucker bands that'll pay to play on that show sure. it starts affecting what kind of shows we can get here and uh about five or six years ago we just started getting hammered from both sides madison and minneapolis from promoters like that and our shows started disappearing because it, and it was a cycle where um that was happening and bands were doing it and then some of those band guys and some of those promoters were working their way up at the into booking agencies to the point where booking agents were guys who expected things to work that way. It wasn't the, you've done great shows for my bands in the past, I'll give you a band. It was, I always paid to play when I was young, we're going to go with that. And it, it really affected the, the economy of what we're doing. And, you know, we don't sell alcohol, so we make money off ticket sales. So we, when I say make money, there's big air quotes on that too. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a labor of love for everybody. And, you know, paying the bills has always been just awesome. <laughs> you know, I've been so happy when I can write a check to pay a bill. And um, 
it 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 started catching up on us and us getting behind on the mortgage and uh, um, getting behind on some property taxes. And then it just, that stuff, when it gets going downhill, it snowballs and it starts getting more momentum. And uh, I had Ben and a couple of other people who were original warehousers um, back 20, 25 years ago come to me who were two of them were parents that have kids that actually come here now. Um, and they said, well, you know, you should consider, um, taking all the debt on yourself and having the warehouse separate into a 501 C three. And that was the only way that we saw that we could save what the warehouse was. So I assumed all of the debt, which I'm still carrying. Um, and the warehouse went through a, a, a two-year process with the IRS of uh, switching from a quote-unquote for-profit, although my accountant always <laughs> called us anti-profit, um, so quote-unquote for-profit to a non-profit. And the benefits of the non-profit are that, you know, if, if companies or people want to donate to you, uh, it's a tax write-off. Otherwise, it's just tons more paperwork and uh, you got to be careful what you say on the uh, on the websites that involve politics and things like that. And it's although it's it's great to have the affirmation of the IRS that what we do fits into their criteria for what a nonprofit can be, and it's it, it's great to be included. We we've found that um, fundraising is extremely hard because there's very much an old boy network in town. And, uh, you know, those people that run the other big nonprofits that aim towards kids, and I don't want to point a finger at anybody, are, are very good at um, spending their organization's money, taking so-and-so out to dinner and so-and-so out to lunch and having meetings, lunch meetings, breakfast meetings, and um, spending all day fundraising. Some of those organizations in town that we fight against and it's not a fight, but I mean that, that we stand alongside of to try to get funding, um, have people who are 24 hour, well, I guess not 24 hour, but I, I think that way because that's how I work. They're, they're full-time uh, fundraisers. And that's all they do is go around asking people for money. Well, I, I, I don't have the time for that. Nobody on the board who are all volunteers has time for that. And it's... It's very hard to get it through to some of these old donors that what we do is important. If we were to call the warehouse a fine arts place, they might be a little more sympathetic. But we don't do the kind of music that uh, you know that they do at the Lacrosse Symphony or that they have at, at some of the other places. We're, we're we're for the kid who has nowhere to go because he wants to pick up an electric guitar and uh, play it. Or that kid who doesn't want to play paradiddles on the snare drum for marching band, he wants to jam out on a full kit. Um, so so what we do is, although it's critical, it's very hard to sell as a nonprofit. But you did it. Well, yeah. I mean, we've sold it to IRS. The IRS looked at the books and looked at what we did, and we totally fall into their category. But selling it to the community and then getting that community to turn around and uh, donate money is is complicated, and you can 
you know, it, it seems weird to people that were quote unquote asking for money all the time, but, um, imagine, you know, a place like, um, say the, the, the YMCA who just did a, what, a $10 million expansion. Uh, imagine them existing just on, uh, some people paying admission every once in a while. It, 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 numerically it just doesn't work. And, uh, so just like those places, we need to ask for money, except those places have people that write checks to them daily and we're, we're fighting an uphill battle and it's very, very complicated. Yeah. Well, and that doesn't sound like, uh, accounting and business wasn't your plan. I, you didn't get a, you know, a master's from a business college. So I can sympathize with the position you you're in now trying to be a nonprofit organization while what your goal was is to bring great music to kids in a safe environment. Yeah, it's, you know, I like you said, I definitely didn't take any business courses, but I, I also never along the way even thought about trying to find a way to make real money out of this place. It seemed like it was important. It was what I do and it's and that's it. But I, I've had many people along the way say, um, you know, sell the building, get out. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, now's the time to sell the building. I don't mean now, but I mean then. Yeah. And uh, uh, that that was never never part of my plan. I just I every time every time I get within striking distance of of saying I have to give this up. I'll get that message from a kid going, hey, can I talk? You know, that, that's at like two or th three in the morning and that kid's been that kid's been sitting up all night. Sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> and that, that kid's got nobody to talk to. And it comes to, to, to me because I'm his friend from the place that he can go. And I, I, I can't imagine pulling the plug on that. What some of those kids are going to do? I mean, th sure they'll they'll find other places, I suppose. But uh, is, is somebody going to take the time? You know, that's what I worry about. It is vital to me that the the warehouse continues to provide to everybody what it did when I was a kid, and I would implore everybody to help support this kind of thing, especially if you live in the area. Um, I, there'll be a link in the show notes to the all age, all ages alliance.org, which is the warehouse Alliance website, but keep this going. Like Steve, you've done, you've done everything for decades. Let's, let's make this, let, let's make this last. You know, part of that, that story that I was telling about how we got here kind of illustrates the, the need and it was from back in the early 90s. Um, remember I said we had been taking all the money and putting it back into the building to fix it up for the landlords in, uh, in um, St. Paul. And uh, all of a sudden the city started plans with, well, we're going we're gonna to fix up the sidewalks and we're going to start fixing up the downtown. And um, all of a sudden uh, Gerard Heschler had for sale signs on the building. And I talked to the landlords in Minneapolis and they said, yep, we're, we're putting the building up for sale. And we didn't know what to do because we had put in a furnace and, you know, all this electric and spent all our money on everything. And uh, it, it seemed like the only thing to do was to make an offer on the building 
but we had zero dollars. So they had to come to us every time they wanted to get in to show the building to someone. And it was usually people that wanted to put in apartments or condos or things like that. And uh, we messed with people coming in so hardcore. Um, if it was, if, if we knew that they were coming in the next day and it was going to be raining, the night before we would put buckets all over the third floor, fill them with varying heights of water, put a little bit of Coke in them so that they looked like they were discolored, a bit Coca-Cola. Yeah. Get ladders out, get fast food restaurant size cups full of water ready. Uh, we'd have a spotter watching for them coming. And when we saw the realtor coming with people, we would move the ladder to above the buckets and splash the ceiling all around the third floor and sometimes on the second floor and then shoot out the back door. And so when they came in, it looked like the place was just a sieve. And there was just water dripping everywhere. And uh, there was a couple times where they needed to show it in August. And we uh, locked all the windows down as tight as we could. Ran the furnace for about a day and a half. So it was about 130 degrees in here. And uh, we, we did things like that. But I, I made an offer on the building. And uh, we had... Somehow in our agreement for the to fix up the building, they had included the wording that we would have first right of refusal, which meant we had first chance at buying it, if so, first chance at matching their their price that they wanted, and uh, they accepted. So um, there I was with no money. Uh, my business partner at the time was like, I don't know if this is a good idea, and uh, they we had we had made the deal. No no money for a down payment, nothing. And um, so we uh, found ways to delay them. I, I, I had an attorney that was kind of crafty, and we just found things to hang up with the paperwork and tie things up. Meanwhile, I'm going to every bank in town trying to get a loan. And downtown buildings weren't the hottest thing then, and, and nobody was interested. I had somebody from one bank that I can look out the window and see right now point over at this building and laugh. Um, just no interest in helping. But that was the time when the industrial dance nights were starting up and a bunch of kids, um, Laura Bennett and Kyle Bertelson and some other ones wrote a letter to the Tribune. That's the local paper. And, uh, we had a deadline of December 26th to come up with the money because the landlords knew that we were screwing with them. They, they, they figured out that we must be screwing with them. So we had the December 26th deadline. They wrote a letter on, I think the 23rd or 24th, which either got published on the 25th on Christmas or the 24th, if they didn't have a Christmas issue, I don't remember, of the Tribune. And it was a letter from all these kids saying that they, they wouldn't have anywhere to go and that there was there was no place you know, that, that, like it that they could hang out where they felt like they could be themselves and uh, how important it was to them. And this was unsolicited. I had given up. And uh, got published in the paper. And uh, on the morning of the 26th, Park Bank called up and said, why don't you get over here and we'll get this figured out. And uh, I was able to get a loan and at that point buy the building. Aww. So that was, and that was a little bit of kid, kids showing how important it was to them. So that was, that yeah. was really nice. It's, it's an amazing story. The whole thing, all 25 years of it. 
Oh, man. We could do a lot of podcasts. All right. Well, first, thanks for being here, Steve. Yeah. I Like I said, I have links for the Warehouse and the Warehouse Alliance and the Facebook page. Is there anywhere you want to list where you can be found or reached? Um, let's see. Well, our, our if you've got those pages, that kind of covers everything. Our um, sort of ongoing fundraising page is a Patreon page. It's uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash all ages. All right. That'll be in the show notes. And uh, I actually, I think we have a GoFundMe at the same address, GoFundMe.com slash all ages. All right. I will double check those and make sure they're in the show notes as well. If, if anybody would care to help, that would be great. And it's totally tax deductible. And anybody needs to write to me about anything or any questions, please feel free. Awesome. All right. And I'm Brett Terpstra. I'm at brettterpstra.com and TT Scuff everywhere. And that's episode 194 with Steve Harm. And again, Steve, thanks for being here. Like I said, you're a you're a father figure to generations of kids, and and I do appreciate getting to talk to you. I enjoyed it much myself. And uh, we'll see everybody in a week. Thanks for listening. You got time for one more story? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, when when the internet was first getting going, uh, we had a kid who used to come here all the time. I guess I won't say first getting going because you technical guys know better than that. But I mean when it was getting going more as a consumer thing. Um, we had a kid who came here who said, you guys got to have a website. So we set up like a, I don't know if you remember these, but it, I think our the end of our URL was like cjb.net.2 or something like that. It was just... A ridiculous address. Um, but he set it up so that I could do a, a, a commentary on each show after every show, which sounded great. But I didn't quite understand the reach of the Internet. So I thought I was just kind of talking to people around here. And uh, we had a band here that um, played with My Chemical Romance uh, called A Static Lullaby. And they were they were younger kids, but they were signed to Columbia Records, uh, and they uh, they were total jackasses to the crowd. They called the kids fat farmers. Um, <laughs> they were bitching that they couldn't drink, even though they were all under twenty one. <laughs> they were really mad. They couldn't have any guest list, even though they didn't know anybody in town. <laughs> um, and their tour manager was constantly apologizing to me all night, and let me know that as soon as the show was done, he was going to go to the airport and leave them he was just gonna fly right out of here because he was done with it and um he i believe he actually did that i think the band had to drive themselves for a while <laughs> but um uh i i wrote about it and uh i said in my commentary that if i were him i would have went to one more gig and on the way i would have waited till they all fell asleep and i would have put the cruise control on and dove out <laughs> and then hope that there was a a, uh, a fiery rollover. That didn't go over so well. <laughs> and it wasn't too long before their manager was calling me, the agent was calling me, um, their management company who managed The Cure and a lot of other big bands was threatening the hell out of me 
because apparently their deal with Columbia hadn't totally gone through yet. And uh, they told me it was jeopardizing their record contract, which was going to cost a lot of people, including them, a lot of money. Uh, they were threatening me. And then I got a call from the vice president of the record company asking me about what I had written. And is this a band that he should work with? And uh, realizing how hard bands work and that sometimes bands need to blow off steam, I, I smoothed it all over with, you know, they were probably just letting loose a little bit. They, you know, I don't know what their trip was like here or what the night was like before that. They were, they were pretty rude to the crowd, but I think they just might have had, had some issues that night. And so they ended up getting signed. And in fact, I'm still good friends with two of the guys who it was only, it was probably 10 years later um, after that band had dissolved that one of the guys called me up and had a different band and wanted to play here. And uh, I'd been sitting on that all that time, just feeling horrible about it. And when he brought up who he was and what band he'd been in, I'm like, holy cow, you guys are the guys I wrote that hor that nasty <laughs> blog about. And he's like, oh, yeah. Boy, that was a long time ago. They just <laughs> did, could care less. And it, it had been sitting on me since the day I wrote it. But at that point I learned if I'm going to give commentary on a band, a critique of any sort that I'm going to tell it to them straight and I'm not going to put it on the internet where it can be <laughs> misconstrued, spread around or. I, I have, I have found that to be, I've been writing online for quite a while now and I have found my rule is if I have criticisms, it goes to the developer or the person involved. If I have good things to say, then I'm happy to do it on the internet. But if it's if it's not good, I don't waste my energy putting it online. And I learned this, like you, the hard way. Yeah, that's that's the best way to be. I mean, constructive criticism, almost everybody appreciates if you're doing it to them when they're pulled aside. But, right. You, know, you never want to talk to... You never want to tell the drummer that he's doing something wrong when he's standing with the rest of the band and a couple fans. Or the entire internet. The whole <laughs> entire world, yes. 